Welcome to the Cornerstone Bible Church. Any of you who are visiting with us for the first time, we hope you feel welcomed. We hope that, that having sung the word, your heart has been stirred appropriately with the glory and the beauty of Christ. And now we turn to his word to continue to exalt and proclaim him. Would you please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Let me read to you from beginning in verse 13 down to the first part of verse 18. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. Let's pray. We come before you, Lord Jesus, supreme over all. Creator of all, head over the church, and we ask that you would minister to us through your word today. Exalt yourself. Show us how glorious you are. Remind those who have forgotten. Make aware those who have never seen it. Open blind eyes. Turn to flesh stony hearts. Revive dead hearts and burdened hearts. Do so for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're doing a sermon series on the supremacy of Christ over all things. Why? Because understanding the glorious supremacy of Christ is the key to every Christian's growth. You will fail to live for Christ as you should if you fail to see Christ as He is. Confusion about Christ, it's going to result in a lack of confidence in Christ. If you lose sight of the glory and the majesty of Christ, you will no longer be captivated by the one in whom Paul says in chapter 2, verse 3 here, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And when you lose sight of Him, You'll be at risk of being deluded by persuasive arguments, philosophies, empty deception, which align with worldly religion and ideas, rather than with Christ and with Scripture. And instead of being captivated by Christ in whom, Paul says, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in whom you have been made complete, instead you'll become enamored by lesser things. Lesser philosophies. Lesser principles of the world. Right? That's what was happening in Colossae. Epaphras, the one who had brought the gospel to the city, became so concerned over what he saw happening that he decided to make a 1,300-mile trip to go visit the Apostle Paul in Rome, where he was imprisoned. He came back from that trip with this letter, where Paul in his position as as an apostle, he's urging them 
to continue on in their faith in Christ, to continue walking with Christ, setting their minds on Christ. Why? Because He is all, and He is in all. There's nothing greater, there's nothing wiser than Christ. He is sufficient for all our needs because Christ is supreme over everything. There's no moving on from Christ to something better because there is no one greater than Him. Christ is supreme because He's God. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the full disclosure of God to man, Paul says in verse 15. He reveals all that God wants us to know about Him because He is God in human flesh. And the only way to know what God is like is to look at Jesus Christ. God's goal for every one of His people of all time is that we would be fully conformed to the image of the One who is the perfect image of the invisible God. That's His goal for you. Now, furthermore, Christ is supreme because He is the Creator. He's the firstborn of all creation. He holds the place of highest honor and rank being in all beings that... Um, all that exists was made by Him. It was made through Him. And it was made for Him. No power or authority exists, whether we're talking earthly power or heavenly power, that is not subject to Him. Every person who has ever existed will glorify Him. The question is just simply how. You will either glorify Him as your Savior or as your judge. And therefore, all men... They should come humbly to Christ. They should receive the pardon that God freely offers through Him and only Him. Our lives should be centered around Christ. God's promise is to conform us to the image of Christ and we can count on the sovereign care of Christ in our lives. You know, we're all centering our lives around something. There is something that serves as your primary motivation for what you will and won't do. Some are motivated by pleasure. Others are motivated by prestige. Others by power. See, as a Christian, your life should be centered around Christ. Why? Because He's supreme over all things. And knowing this is the key to your growth. We've seen Christ's supremacy as God. His supremacy as Creator, and this morning we see His supremacy over the church. What, what will cause you to center your life around Christ is seeing the supremacy, His supremacy as head over the church. What will cause you to center your life around Christ is to see Him as His supremacy as head over the church. The title of this sermon is The, the Supremacy of Christ Over the Church. The supremacy of Christ over the church. Verse 18 defines the relationship of Christ to the church. He says he is also head of the body, the church. There is more about Christ as head of the church in these few verses than we will have time to unpack this morning. But let me give to you six duties that Christ faithfully performs for the church as her sovereign and supreme head. He sets the priority and agenda for the church. He safeguards the church. 
He supplies the needs of the church. He seeks and finds those who are His people. He assesses and purifies the church. And He secures the life of the church to His life. Let's begin. So Christ's first duty as head of the church... And I don't mean that these are in a list of priority. The first one I'm bringing before you as head of the church is that he sets the priority and agenda of the church. Christ sets the priority and agenda of the church. Jesus didn't leave our agenda up to us to figure out. He set it for us. And like a body does what the head tells it, so the church is to do what Christ tells her. Or there's a problem. When the body fails to do what the head instructs, it's it's tragic. It's equally tragic when Christ's body, the church, fails to do what Christ says. The church is not the creation of man's ingenuity. It's not the result of some entrepreneur's vision. The church is a living organism of which the living Christ is the head which means that He has sovereign lordship and supreme authority over her. And that's true for the church right now. Christ is reigning right now over His church. And as her head, He sets what her priority and her agenda is to be until He returns. Now, her first priority is to make disciples of Christ in all the nations. This is the first priority that Christ sets for His church. We are to make disciples of all the nations. There's two main texts that preach this to us and teach this to us. First one you're well familiar with. Matthew 28, 18. Let's turn there. Matthew 28. Beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came up. He spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So before his ascension, Christ reveals that the Father has given him all authority in heaven and on earth to do what? To make disciples of all the nations. So Christ has sovereign authority to operate in any way he desires to enable his church to make disciples amongst all the nations of the world. So in his supremacy over all things, as creator of all things, nothing can prevent his church from accomplishing his agenda for the church. No entity exists that can thwart or prevent the success of his church in fulfilling her priority. Governments. Rulers, civil authorities, financial institutions, parents, educators, neighbors, friends, enemies, all, all will bow to his sovereign purposes. Why? Because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. There is no one above him. There is no rival to him. He faces no obstacles. He needs no counselors. He can simply command his church And through their faith and obedience, He overcomes any and all resistance such that when His sheep hear His voice in the preaching of the Gospel, they come, they repent, they believe. That's what happened to you, Christian. We we all have, have different accounts of how that took place. 
Some of you may have resisted for a time. You might have resisted for years to come, but in the end you came. Why? Because He wanted you to. You heard His voice. You came when, because the Spirit of God, He gave you eyes to finally see the glory of Christ. He gave you ears to finally hear the voice of your shepherd and the proclamation of the gospel by a friend, by a preacher, as you read the Word. But you came because He called. The primary way through which His church is to make disciples, it's by being witnesses. And doing what witnesses do. Turn over to Acts chapter 1. This is the other verse I mentioned. Acts chapter 1. Follow along as I read verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. So the primary way that Christ instructs His church to make disciples is by functioning as witnesses of Christ. Now, when Christians hear nowadays, when they hear the word witness, we tend to think of, of personal evangelism. We think of sharing right, the gospel, as we often call it. Not the best term, really, but it does imply what we're doing. We're seeking to share with them the, the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ really is a command. Come. And if you're wise, you'll obey. And we, we share that command with people. Come to Christ. Receive forgiveness that you need. Right? And so, while there's nothing wrong with personal evangelism in this sense, that's not really what Christ is speaking of here. Uh, this word witnesses in, in verse 8, it's a noun. The verb form of this same word is translated testify repeatedly in the rest of the book of Acts. Let me just give you one example. Turn over to Acts chapter 10. And here in Acts chapter 10, we see both the noun and the verb form of this word together. Um, so, this is a pretty big moment. The gospel is now going forth from Jerusalem, just as he commanded, and it's now going into a Gentile's home. This is Peter in the house of Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He acts. Uh, he, uh, he says in uh, verse 38, follow along here, he says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth. And then verse 39, he says, We are witnesses. There's the noun. We're witnesses of all the things he did. They put him to death. They hung him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day, granted that he become visible not to all people, but to Again, the noun, witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us. We ate, we drank with him. When he after he arose from the dead, he ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify. There's the verb form of the same word. Testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So here we see Christ functioning as the head of the church. And what are we to be? We're to function as His witnesses, even to the remotest parts of the earth. What do witnesses do? They testify. Witnesses testify. Which, you can see right in that verse, it's synonymous with the preaching. This is apostolic preaching. It's testifying of Christ. That's what apostolic preaching is. Testifying of who Christ is. Testifying of what He did. 
And if we are to fulfill the agenda that Christ has set for us to make disciples of all the nations, the content of our preaching must be a witness. It must be a witness of who Christ is. It must testify of what Christ has done. See, when people come to a church, they, want, they, they are here to hear about Christ from His Scriptures. This is the agenda that Christ has set for us. This is how disciples are made for Christ. This is how disciples learn to obey Christ. They begin to see Him as their Lord, as their Savior, as the one to whom they bow down and submit to, even when it's difficult, even when it costs their life. Because they see Him for who He is. People come into church every week. They've got their burdens. They've got those sorrows. We live in a difficult world. It's difficult even if you're not a Christian. But even when you have Christ, you come in burdened and sorrowful. And you know what? They're struggling to trust Christ, to obey Him, to honor Him. Maybe that's you. You're struggling right now. There's things that are tempting you. This is the easier path. This is the path I want to go down. But you know it's taken you away from Christ. What do you need to hear about? You don't need to hear some inspiring story from me. It brings a tear to your eye. You don't need to sing some emotional song to get yourself pumped up and excited. What you need to hear more than anything else is you need to be pointed to Christ from His Word. You need a vision of the glorious Christ. They need to hear again about the testimony about who Christ is and what His death accomplished for them. And that's what God's people need when they gather. They need to hear about their Savior. This is the agenda that Christ set for His church. And when you faithfully point people to Christ, they find what they need. Their circumstances, they might not have changed one bit, but their faith and their strength to persevere, it's been renewed. And they can keep going. They know Christ loves them. He's going to care for them. They get so caught up in Christ who rescues them from their troubles, they can deny themselves now. They can take up their cross. They can keep on following this glorious Christ. They can even find that in losing their lives for Christ's sake, that's where they actually find their life. It doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense until you understand that the one who is being testified of, proclaimed, He's the sovereign, supreme Lord of life who gives life and help and hope to His people by just simply showing Himself, showing who He is, who you're submitting to, who you're following. What's the defining characteristic, though, of a disciple of Christ? They're men and women who submit to Christ's authority in their lives. They learn what Christ commands, and they seek to obey. That's what a disciple does. He follows and obeys Christ because Christ is his Lord. There's no such thing as Christians who are not also disciples. Disciple is simply another word for Christian. If you're not doing what Christ commands, if you're not following His agenda, you're not His disciple. And you're not a Christian. There's plenty of people who profess to be Christians, but who live really however they choose. They pick and choose what commands of Christ they will and won't obey. And such a person is a Christian in name only. You're not a follower of Christ if you think that you can do your own thing. 
You might be fo- you might be fooling others. You're you're clearly fooling yourself, but you are not fooling Christ. You are either on board with His agenda, or He is neither your Lord and therefore not your Savior. What you need most is to understand what Christ says to those who claim to be on His team but are really just living their lives according to their own desires and doing their own thing. When such people stand before Him on that coming day, He's going to dismiss them. He'll turn them away. He'll say, depart from Me. Why? Because your life was not characterized by the allegiance and the obedience of a true disciple. Your relationship was simply on your terms. It wasn't on His. It wasn't your Lord. His agenda didn't affect how you lived. You lived how you wanted. And the proof was there all along. You lived lawlessly. As if there is no lawgiver and no law. They found out that their actions mattered nothing when they came from self-loving, self-driven hearts. So Christ is the head of the church. He sets the agenda for her, which means... Making disciples of Christ. We're also, secondly, to train up men to lead his church like Christ. Second aspect of him being the, um, the head of the church and making disciples of all the nations. We're to train up men to lead his church like Christ. 2 Timothy 2.2. If you'd like to turn there and follow along. 2 Timothy 2.2 says this. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So as we make disciples of Christ, we are to observe those who are faithful. They're faithful to carry out the tasks given to them by their leaders. Their leaders come to say, hey, this is something that needs to be done. I'd like you to do it. And they say, okay. And then they're faithful to fulfill it. That's someone you take note of, God says. You take note of those who are faithful. How else can you demonstrate faithfulness? Is faithfulness demonstrated because you are saying what you're going to do? Or is it when someone in authority spiritually comes to you and says, we need you to do this? And you say, okay, I'll do it. And then you carry it out. That's a demonstration of faithfulness. If if people are doing their own thing, setting their own agenda, declaring what they will and won't do, where they will and won't serve, that's not faithfulness. And you pass them by. We're servants. We're not employees. We don't have rights. Oh, I can't do that. That's not in my contract. You're a bondservant of Christ. He bought you with His blood. You belong to Him and you do what He says. Or you're not His. We're to do what needs to be done. So the church can carry out Christ's agenda. Need I give you a practical example of this insert? These are things that Christ wants done. Why? Because they've come down through the leadership of the church. Those whom Christ has raised up to lead His church say, here are things to be done. How can you demonstrate that Christ is your Lord, that He's over your life? Then these are my priority. I need to make sure that these are being met as a part of the body of Christ. Very simple, very practical. If you think I'm using this to manipulate, I'm not. I'm shepherding you. Trying to make sure that your mind is focused on what you need to be doing. 
And it's not your own thing, according to your own terms. So we're looking for the ones to invest in. Christ tells us to do that. We're to train up leaders. How? By looking for faithful men. It's the man who says, here I am, use me. That's who you focus your efforts on. These are the ones you invest in. They're demonstrating their faithfulness to the one who came to serve. He came to serve. That's what I want to do. I want to serve like my Lord and my Savior. But those who lay down their boundaries, those who set their parameters and their stipulations, you pass them by. And out of the faithful men that you find, you invest in, he says, amongst them we're to recognize who Christ has appointed to be elders and who will oversee and shepherd his church. See, Christ sets the agenda for his church. He also sets the criteria of those who will lead his church. They must be faithful servants, just like Christ was. They also have to have the character of Christ. And through Paul, who was an apostle of Christ, he tells us the moral character that must be present in those who will shepherd his flock. We're told in passages like 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, they must be men who are above reproach in their roles as husbands and fathers. They, they lead their homes spiritually, such that their wives and their children, they love and respect them. So they must be gentle and hospitable and humble and mature and sober-minded and prudent and respectable and temperate, respected by all. It doesn't matter how successful you are in the business world, in education, in government. He has to be a man who possesses a character like Christ's. The fact that you run a successful business, the fact that you've made lots of money, The fact that you manage a Fortune 500 uh, company, that has no bearing on your ability to lead and shepherd God's people. And this is Christ's church. He will only have leaders over it who have hearts that are like His. He's the head of the church. He determines her priority. He sets her agenda, which includes training up godly men who will lead His church in love. And so we are to make disciples of Christ. We're to train up men who will lead like Christ. And thirdly, we're to address serious sin with the authority of Christ. We address serious sin with the authority of Christ. See, if you belong to a church, you're going to sin against others. And you're going to be sinned against by others. And so that's why Peter says what he says in 1 Peter 4a. He says, above all. Guys, listen to me. Above all. All you need to keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. It's the only way we're going to do this thing. The only way we're going to show the world that we really are followers of Christ if we keep fervent in our love so that when brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so sins against me, I'll overlook it in love. You need to keep your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ fervent. You're going to be sinned against. Right? You're going to be slighted. You're going to be overlooked. You're going to be disgusted. You're going to be maligned. You're going to be forgotten. You're not going to be included. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be under or unappreciated. Right? In, in many of those cases, right, you can simply choose to overlook it because you know you've done this too been done to you, and you've done it too. It smarts. It stings a bit. Ah, but what's your goal? 
Your goal is to love others like Christ has loved you. How many times have you sinned and just wait for the boom to drop and you're thinking, wow, wow, Christ didn't make a public display of my sin. He didn't overlook it. He put it on Christ. But he also didn't make a big deal of it when he could have. Isn't that glorious? I don't want my sins displayed up on this screen. I know you don't want yours. I'm just thankful they're on Christ. Right? So we overlook like Christ. We don't let it hinder our fellowship when we sin against each other. But what about those times when you can't overlook it? What about those times when someone does something that makes you want to avoid them? Tempts you to speak badly about them? Causes you to feel hatred toward them? What about those times? What about those times when you become aware of a brother or a sister in Christ who is caught up in some sinful behavior? And it's going to do real harm to their walk with God, to their testimony before men, to their marriage, to their life, and and maybe to the church. What do you do then? In other words, you, you don't overlook it. You should not overlook these kinds of sins. What are we to do when that happens? Are we just to accept it because it's, it's none of our business? I'm not supposed to judge others, so let's move on. Am I just to pretend it didn't happen? Am I supposed to make light of it? Because, truthfully, I don't really like confrontation, and I really don't want to confront you. I really don't want to come talk to you about sin, so I'm just going to let it go. I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable, so I'm going to let it go. See, plenty of churches and Christians and churches operate this way. But that is not the priority of Christ's church. That's not the priority Christ, the head, set for His church. The head of the church has told us what we are to do. There's a big section on it in Matthew 18. Let me just read the first part of it. It's familiar to many of you. If your brother sins, Matthew 18:15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. Continues on to go up all the way to the point of what we refer to as excommunication. You send them out. They're not acting like a brother. They don't seem to want to be a brother. So you say you you need to go and live in the world. We'll see what Satan does with you. Right? So that's the end result of it. But this is where it begins. If you see your brother in sin, you speak to him. You go and pull him aside. You talk to him. And your goal, notice the goal is to win them. The same love that enables us to overlook some sins because they're small, it also compels us to address serious sin that ruins lives, ruins marriages, and ruins churches. See, when sins are divisive, when they're public, when they're serious, Christ tells His people what they're to do and He tells them why they are to do it. You go to them... And you seek to win them away from their sin. You are on a rescue mission compelled by love. A fellow believer has been ensnared by the deceit of sin. They've been caught up in it. And it will not end well for them. And it possibly won't end well for others. You're on a rescue mission. I just saw, I don't know how recent this was, but there was some big hoopla about, I think they were climbing K2 or whatever the name of it. 
and here's a line of 50 climbers. And there's one climber who is distressed. He fell. He was a Sherpa, I think. He fell. And he's laying across the path. And here's all the, all the climbers who want to get to the top, stepping over this man while he slowly dies. Not gonna, hey, sorry you're dying, but I paid a lot of money to get to the top of K9. That is not the church. You do not step over a believer who has been, who is basically killing their faith because of their sin. They've been deceived by sin. You go to them. You speak to them in private with a goal to win them away from that sin that has entangled them. And so that dictates how you go. You go humbly. You go kindly. You go gently and you go soberly. Will it be difficult? Yes. Will it be awkward? Most likely. Will you rather be somewhere else than doing that? I can almost assure you. But you do it. And you do it out of obedience to Christ, out of love for Christ and love for His church, of which He is head over. Because He set this priority. He set this agenda for His church. You know, I talked to a pastor. He had a man in his church. He was divorcing his wife simply because he didn't want to be married to her anymore, basically. He threw up a bunch of excuses, said, oh, she's not, it was a mixed marriage, you know, she's not loving my children. She'll be better off outside this marriage. And despite her protests, saying, no, I, I, I want this to be worked out, let's work this out, we can work this out, let's go to counseling. He divorced her anyways. And, you know, because he knew God was okay with it. God understood. So here I am, I'm talking to his pastor. And here's what I'm telling this hireling of Christ's flock. He's not a shepherd. Because this was his reply. What can I do? It's between him and the Lord. Isn't that sad? He claims to be a pastor, a shepherd over his people. But... Sin is just between him and his God. I can't intervene with that. That's a hireling. That's not a shepherd. doesn't matter how many people show up each week. doesn't matter how big a streaming ministry they might have. It doesn't matter how many campuses they have, how many books the pastor has published, or how many people he baptized last month. If sin is not dealt with as Christ commands, it's not a church. Period. Christ is not the head of that church. That church is not a part of Christ's body because Christ is supreme over the church. He sets her priority. He sets her agenda. And the church obeys. They make disciples. They train up leaders. And they deal with serious sin. Christ's second duty as head of the church, it relates to her safety. Christ safeguards the church. Christ safeguards the church. I think we see this connection between headship and protection in Ephesians chapter 5. Turn there. Ephesians chapter 5. This is where Paul links the husband's role as the head of the wife to Christ's role as the head of the church. Look at verse 22, Ephesians 5. He says, Wives... Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For, here's the reason, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. 
he himself being the Savior of the body. So men, Paul first tells you what you are. You are the head of your wife. And then, he doesn't say, be the head. He says, you are the head. Okay, we start there. This is what you are. You're a head. The question is, what kind of head are you? He wants you to be a head like Christ. Right? So he points you to your example, which is Christ. So you know what kind of head you're supposed to be. Headship refers to authority. doesn't refer to superiority. Wives are superior to their husbands in many ways. And if you're a husband here, you should say amen to that. You know all the ways that your wife is superior to you. But Christ still calls them to submit to their husbands. Why? Because He established husbands to be head over their wives. He established them to be their authority. Our culture has a whole lot of problems with this. Many churches have a whole lot of problems with this. Churches will leave whole denominations and, and, and networks because they got a problem with this. Christ doesn't have a problem with it. He set the agenda for the church. And He safeguards the church. And one of the ways He safeguards the church is He safeguards the family. He created this structure. But, but see, here's the key. And by the way, some of you here may have a problem with this. You just haven't voiced it. I get it. But I don't think men could have any better example of loving headship than Christ Himself. And more than anything else, what makes women doubt about Christ's wisdom in commanding them to submit to their husband's authority is when man, men fail to exercise their authority lovingly like Christ. See, men, if we led our homes like Christ leads the church, I don't think there'd be any problem. Do you? See, men need to repent any time they do that. But Paul here shows that Christ uses his authority. Look at what he uses it for. He protects his bride, the church. And he does so in three ways. He says he saves her, he sacrifices for her, and he sanctifies her. So it is an authority that is driven by love and it is used to protect. Think about what Christ did to protect his bride. He put himself between us, his bride, and our greatest enemy. So that the death blow would strike him and not us. And this is the heart of Christ towards his bride. Think of all the names. Think of all the names in Scripture that we have of God that, that come to their full meaning in Christ. He's our refuge. He's our fortress. He's our high tower. He's our shelter. He's our rock. He's our shield. He's our hiding place. He's our dwelling place. He's our strength. He's our keeper. See, this is what Christ does with His authority, His head over the church. He protects her from harm. And then He calls husbands. He says, you need to do this for your wives, just as I do it for the church. He calls husbands to do the same for their wife. Use your authority as head over your wife to protect her from all sorts of harm, physical harm, emotional harm, spiritual harm. That means you relieve her stress. You tackle her problems. You bear the weight of her burdens. This is why we love and submit to Christ. Isn't it? He protects us. And this is why your wives will love and submit to you, men, because they know that you will put yourself between her and what is harmful, what is difficult, what is she's fearful of. And this is what we are to do. Why? Because this is what Christ does for us. He safeguards His church. 
The third duty that Christ does as head of the church. He supplies the needs of the church. He supplies the needs of the church. You know, Christ made this clear when he compared us to branches on a vine. John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, well, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, though, you can do nothing. So the church that abides in Christ has everything needed for fruitful ministry. But let's focus, though, on the primary way that Christ supplies the needs of the church. He asks the Father to send the Spirit. That's the primary way that Christ provides for the needs of the church. He sent the Spirit. John 14, 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send Him in my name, He told His disciples. And then in Acts chapter 1, He commanded the disciples, He said, wait in Jerusalem until the Father sends the Spirit, because it's through the Spirit that He said back in Acts chapter 1, which we saw earlier, verse 8, He says, it's through the Spirit that you'll receive power. You'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest parts of the earth. See, the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to the ministry of the church. Scripture tells us what the, what the Spirit does for the church. Just to give you a few, the Spirit transforms our lives as we walk throughout our day. As we yield ourselves to His will, our character changes. We're filled with the fruit of His love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That all comes through the Spirit as you walk with Him. The Spirit convicts the church of sin to help us from wandering away from God. John 16 says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Jesus is speaking to His disciples. He says, I... I don't, if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send Him to you. And He, when He comes, He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit also guides the church into truth. Again, in the same uh, section, Jesus says, but when He, when the Spirit of truth comes, He's going to guide you into all truth. The Spirit empowers the church to proclaim Christ. Acts chapter 4. After Peter was released, this is when they prayed. The place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. The Spirit gives gifts to every believer in the church so they can serve one another. They can advance the Gospel. We saw this as we went through Corinthians, specifically in chapter 12. He says there's a variety of gifts, same Spirit. Variety of ministries, same Lord. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, what? For the common good. Right? See, see, when you use your gift to serve, it's not just your benefit. It's everybody here who benefits. It's a common good. So when you withhold your gift, everybody suffers. Everybody is denied. But the Spirit wants to use you, believer, in the life of other believers, for their good. Spirit empowers our worship as a church. 
We see this in Ephesians chapter 5, that, that section where he says, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking, listen, he says, speaking to one another. This is, this is the, the results of being filled with his Spirit. You speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You sing, you make melody with your heart to the Lord. You always are giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So, just just hearing that, knowing that it's connected with our worship, can you see why you cannot afford to forsake when the church gathers together? Look what's taking place when the Spirit is having His way with us. He causes this to happen when the church gathers. Right? He he uh, he works through His people. He through. In- through bringing the Word of God to mind. They're singing the Word of God. They're giving thanks to God. They're submitting to one another. And when you're not here, you're missing out on that. The Spirit is at work. He's encouraging and strengthening you through the corporate gathering of His people. So Christ, in His supremacy, He he supplies all the needs that the church needs to serve and to glorify Him. And instead of putting it into fourth gear and jamming through the rest of the points that I have. I'm going to stop here and we'll pick this up next week. We can't afford to not take time to see all that Christ as head of the church commands us to do and that we as His church in obedience to Him submit ourselves to. That's our desire. That's our joy. So what's driving you? What are you centering your life around? Is it Christ or is it yourself? Do you do as Christ bids because He's your Lord and He's your Savior? Or do you do as you want? What a glorious Lord and Savior. Difficult people to serve, but a glorious Lord and Savior whom we obey. But isn't it amazing that even through the difficulties that we face in trying to serve one another, He's still at work in us. He's still causing us to grow. He's the one bringing the difficult people in because you said, Lord, I want to grow in love. He's at work in you. And you need to obey Him so that He can do that work that He wants to do in you. Let's pray. Father, thank You, God, for showing us the beauty and the glory of Christ as head over the church. We want to be men and women who love Christ and are motivated to serve Him. We don't want to be on our own. We don't want to be calling our own shots, picking our own agendas, deciding what we will and won't do. We want to be on board with what You are doing, not dictating what we will and won't do. Bring us into submission by showing us the glorious Head who is Jesus Christ so that we will do His will even over our own. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.